Shalom. This is Kadima Talk on Leadership with Rabbi Eric Carlson. And this is the first of I don't know how many we will be doing. I have a lot of material and we want to really promote this and put this out into the greater body. I have realized in my years, 20 years now of serving the Lord, that there's little to no true leadership training in the greater body of Messiah. We're not raising leaders. What we're raising is scholars in depth in the word, but we're not raising leaders. And I've heard over the years, many times people say, we've, we've got a particular person, uh, they really excel, they stand out among their peers. So instead of developing leadership skills, we send them to seminary, we send them to yeshiva, we send them to theology schools, where those places don't have leadership training skills, principles, skill sets, or even classes. I've been to many leadership uh, conventions and seminars, and I go to these things and they're teaching seminars on how to speak the word, how to write a word. They're not teaching leadership skills. So to bring this to the table and, uh, and inject true leadership values into the greater body of Messiah, we decided to do these podcasts or these audio recordings and start sharing some information that you could raise up, mentor, and build leaders in the body of Messiah. Leadership is the art of motivating people to act toward achieving a common goal. Leadership is unifying, motivating people to go to places they normally wouldn't but should be. Leadership is the art of getting someone else to do something you want done because he wants to do it, said Dwight D. Eisenhower. In corporate realms, there's transactional leadership, which is an expectation of return for performance. The motivation sets vary. Oftentimes, it's uh, salaries, it's advancements, it's goals. Transformational leadership, which is primarily in the body of Messiah, is motivating, inspiring, and transforming individuals in morality, character, integrity, honor, inspire righteous living through obedience to God. Now, some of the core sets that we'll be going through in this is honor, courage, commitment, and integrity. And all of these are going to be done on a biblical basis via Scripture. And later today, as we move on, we're going to specifically be speaking about character. But I want to go through the four groups at first to set the foundation for what we're going to be doing in the weeks to come as we release these podcasts. Honor means you're accountable for your behavior and actions, to remember the privilege Adonai has placed upon you to serve him and to tend his flock. In this, we abide by an uncompromising code of integrity, taking full responsibility for our actions and keeping our vows and our word. We conduct ourselves in the highest ethical manner in relationships with leadership, congregates in the, within the greater kehel of the greater body, to be honest and truthful in interactions within and outside the body of Messiah, to be bold, to stand for and support. And by support, there's a term I like to use, the three T's, time, talent, and ties. So we use all three to support the kingdom of God, no matter my surroundings or my circumstances. And the last for honors to live and walk in a biblical, ethical manner, both publicly and privately. And as we walk through these things, you begin seeing the realization that in the greater body, we're grievously lacking true biblical authority and leadership. And no other time has it been more critical than our time today to have leadership, to have men and women of God who live according to these principles and lead by them to transform not just people and individuals, but nations and kingdoms. Next is courage. Courage is the value that gives me the moral and mental strength to do what is right with confidence and resolution, even in the face of temptation or adversity. Courage is the quality of mind or spirit that enables a person to face difficult, danger, even pain without fear. 
courage is the foundation of bravery. It's the ability to overcome fear, that intestinal fortitude. Courage isn't something that uh, just naturally comes. We all fear, but courage is the ability to overcome that fear and do what is right in the face of great adversity. We will have the courage to do and perform what God has both called and commanded us to do, to make decisions and act in the best interest of the body of Messiah, the, the greater Kehel of the congregation, without regard to personal desires, agendas, or consequences. Courage is overcoming all challenges, fear, and adversity while adhering to the highest biblical standards of integrity, character, and loyalty. Courage is being loyal to my leadership in the congregation, the body of Messiah, by ensuring the gifts and talents entrusted to me are used in biblical fashion and not squandered or abused. We see this so often in the entertainment industry. So many singers and artists came from the kingdom of God, but are squandering their gifts for money in the world and turning away and even apostatizing from the God of Israel. Next is commitment. The day-to-day -day duty of every individual in the body of Messiah to strive for echad, for unity, for oneness, loyalty, to work together as a body of Messiah, to share the kingdom of God, to improve the quantity and quality of congregates in their commitment of Adonai in Yeshua. We will foster loyalty, commitment, and respect through the greater Kehillah, to share and walk in God's love, to care for and feed the sheep, and seek spiritual wholeness for the greater body of Messiah, to walk in love with all of God's creation without regard to race, culture, or gender, to strive for and exhibit the highest level of biblical, moral, character, loyalty, integrity, purity, and holiness in all that we do. And the last in this, which you've seen is interwoven through all of these, is integrity. Integrity is what you do when you think no one's watching. Integrity exhibits the core value of your character and all of these core foundations of honor, courage, commitment. They're all interwoven and intertwined with integrity. These are the core commitments that we're going to talk about as we go through these various aspects of leadership in the coming weeks. Today, we want to focus on character. Character is one of the attributes or features that make up and distinguish an individual. It's the complex of mental and ethical traits marking and often individualizing a person, group, or nation. It's moral excellence and firmness. Listen, you can't choose your hair color, your skin color, or your height. But character is something that can be learned and cultivated, resulting in moral excellence and firmness. King David, biblically, is one of the most well-known figures found in scriptures. Son of Yeshai, he was both known and depicted as a righteous king, although not without faults. David was an acclaimed mighty warrior, an anointed musician, and a famed poet. He is traditionally credited for composing many of the psalms contained in the book of Psalms. Scripture details the Messiah's direct descent lineage from the line of David. We have many, many biblical examples of David's profound love for God, humility, zealous worship of God, sin and repentance, and profound skill in the art of combat. David got his start when God decreed that he was done with Saul and found a person with whom he can establish a kingship forever in David. In 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, But as it is, your kingship will not be established. Adonai has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And Adonai has appointed him to be the prince over his people because you did not observe what Adonai ordered you to do. Own heart is Lavav in Hebrew. It's the inner man, the mind, the will, the heart, the soul, his understanding. God wanted someone who understood him, someone who would be loyal, obedient, and a warrior, yet humble. 
David was far from perfect. And this is a key here. God's not looking for perfect people. They don't exist. There are no perfect congregations. There's no perfect rabbis. There's no perfect pastors. There's no perfect worship leaders. David did nothing halfway in his life. God's looking for those who will seek him, who will be intimate with him, that will be humble, admit their shortcomings, repent, and go on to even more intimacy with Adonai. David did nothing halfway in his life. When David went to war, he fought with every ounce of his being. He fought to win. When David worshiped God, he did so with every fiber of his being. He did so with great zeal and heartfelt love, awe and wonder. David feared God, yet he was intimate and personal with him. When David sinned, he went directly to God, confessed his sin and his shortcomings, and he asked God for forgiveness. So why David? We've gone over the Hebrew terminology, so we see a connection between God and David, but it doesn't get to the bottom of it yet. David was real with God. David was a man of character. That's what God wants. People with character. That's what God is looking for. People as well perceive character. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, by the time David had finished speaking to Shaul, Saul, Jonathan found himself inwardly drawn by David's character so that Jonathan loved him as he did himself. Jonathan, Saul's son, was drawn to David because of David's character. Drawn inwardly is kashar in Hebrew, meaning they are bound together, tied together, in league with one another. In fact, it's a soul connection, a soul tie, the same connection David has with God. Their soul, nefesh in Hebrew, soul, self, life, person, mind, living, being, desires, emotions, passions, will, activity of the character. It's the essence of self, of who you are. And here's the key phrase. It's the activity of your character. Jonathan was drawn to David by this activity. It's the same activity of the character that drew God unto David and David unto God. Nefesh, nishra, benefesh. Their souls became bound, knit together, in league. Why? Well, the root word for kashar, drawn, is ma'alal, which means character, your deeds, your acts, your endeavors, your works, the practices of what you do. Proverbs 20, verse 11 says, the character of even a child is known by how he acts, by whether his deeds are pure and right. David's character opened the door to relationship with royalty. Jonathan was drawn to David by David's character, so much so that Jonathan gave to David the clothes of royalty. In a prophetic sense, I believe Jonathan was honoring the king of Israel, even though Saul, his father, was still king. I've often met people that I'm immediately drawn to. The gifting, the character of this person is, is palpable. You can see it on them. It comes with anointing as well. Jonathan saw this in the young David and prophetically dressed him as a prince of Israel, of which technically he really was. Your character precedes you wherever you go. Character awards a place of honor for a Gentile Moabite woman who stayed with and honored her Jewish mother-in-law. In Ruth 3, verse 11, it says, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid, for I will do for you everything you say, for all the city leaders among my people know that you are a woman of good character. Adonai will test our character. Every godly biblical leader has to undergo development and testing of their character. Because of our position of influence over others, we must experience special, unique encounters with the Spirit of God. James 3, verses 1 through 2 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, since you know that we will be judged more severely. For we all stumble in many ways. If someone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man who can bridle his whole body. The testing of our character is an ongoing process. Emphasis on process. As you grow, develop, and mature with heavenly responsibilities given, more testing is required. 
We are also tested as part of his maintenance plan during your current assignment. And test again when Adonai wants to upgrade your assignment, preparing you for more fruits and influence. Which brings me back to John 15, verses 1 through 2. Yeshua said, I'm the real vine, and my father's a gardener. Every branch which is part of me but fails to bear fruit, he cuts off. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Those who are bearing fruit will be pruned so that it will bear even more fruit. The fruit of a tree, never pruned, will begin to shrivel and wither, producing smaller, smaller, and less sweet fruit. Adonai is the wise gardener who knows the time and season to prune and fertilize so that your fruit will increase. There are three main reasons for Adonai's continued testing. Number one, our personalities contain characteristics that are not Messiah-like. When we come into the kingdom, it's one of transformation. When we receive Yeshua, we become a renewed mind, renewed spirit, renewed body. There, there's an emphasis on transformation and renewing. Our old flesh is nailed to the stake every day, and we're renewed by the blood of Yeshua. As leaders in the body of Messiah, we represent Yeshua. If we are his representative, all negative traits such as pride, rudeness, disloyalty, selfishness, laziness, independence, moodiness, anger, disobedience, ungratefulness, and arrogance must be changed. When we kneel before him and ask for covenant relationship to change yourself, Adonai hears that prayer. You can't change anybody else, only yourself. And it's only by humbly admitting your shortfalls and coming to him, he will open the door and allow the blood of Yeshua to transform and renew you. You can't change another person, only yourself. Pride is a major source of most of these unmessiah like character traits. Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 11, this is 11 through 18. It says, Be careful not to forget Adonai your God by not obeying his mitzvahs, rulings, and regulations that I'm giving you today. Otherwise, after you have eaten and are satisfied, built fine houses and lived in them, and increased your herds, flocks, silver, gold, and everything else you own, you will become proud-hearted. Wealth and material blessings result in pride. This is why we're in such a dangerous place in America today. You'll become proud-hearted, forgetting Adonai your God, verse 14, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, where you lived as slaves, who led you through the vast and fearsome desert with its poisonous snakes, scorpions, and waterless, thirsty ground, who brought water out of flint rock for you, who fed you in the desert with man, unknown to your ancestors, all the while humbling and testing you in order to do good in the end. And you will think to yourself, verse 17, my own power and strength of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. No, you're to remember Adonai your God, because it is he who is giving you the power to get wealth in order to confirm his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors, as is happening even today. Pride is something that everyone else notices, except the individual who has it. A prideful heart lends us to think we did these things ourselves and forget about, or even worse, remove God and his teachings from our culture, governments, homes, and families. A prideful heart lends us to think we did these things ourselves and forget about, or even worse, remove God and his teachings from our culture, government, homes, and families. This is where we are at as individuals and as a nation. We've forgotten who got us here and what we've been delivered from. Verse 19 is the end result of the sin of pride. If you forget Adonai your God, follow other gods and serve and worship them, I am warning you in advance today that you will certainly perish. There are two kinds of pride. There's the pride of a job well done. God states that our heritage is the pride of Yaakov, Jacob. Paul is proud of the congregations he was working with. There's the pride in a child's accomplishments, the glowing pride, love, and respect of your spouse. These prides are not sinful. There is a pride that God hates, 
the pride of self-righteousness and arrogance. Proverbs 8, 13 says, The fear of Adonai is hatred of evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil ways, and duplicitous speech. Why does God hate this? For the very reason mentioned in Deuteronomy 8, pride is a hindrance in seeking him. It's an idol. Pride separates us from God. Psalms 10, verse 4 says, Every scheme of the wicked in his arrogance says, There is no God, so it won't be held against me. This arrogance and haughty pride is in opposition to the spirit of humility that God seeks. Psalms 149, verse 4 says, Adonai takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Yeshua said in Matthew 18, verse 4, So the greatest in the kingdom is whoever makes himself as humble as this child. Ephesians 4, 2 tells us, Always be humble, gentle, and patient, bearing with one another in love. The humble God blesses with salvation. The humble the greatest in the kingdom of God. We're told to be humble, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another is an interesting side note here. The prideful, however, are so blinded by their arrogance of pride that they believe they have no need of God. God warns us about this pride, his distaste of it, and the consequences of pride. Proverbs 16, verses 18 through 19 said, Pride goes before destruction and arrogance before failure. Better to be humble among the poor than share the spoil with the proud. There are bombshells here with the signs of pride. Don't stop the podcast right now. Don't get up and go get something to drink. But listen very intently and judge yourself honestly as we go through 13 signs of pride in your life. Number one, insecurity. And this is really prevalent among congregational leaders, Messianic rabbis, pastors. There's great insecurity in the Bema. If someone comes in and they feel or understand that this person may be a better speaker or a little more scholar than them, they become very insecure Insecurity is the root of many unhealthy and ungodly behaviors. It provokes us to want the lavish praise and attention of others too much. Much of pride is motivated out of one's unmet need for self-worth. Finding one's identity and security in, in Messiah is a must to avoid pride. Number two is the need to be right. Argumentative people. Ever encounter someone who has a hard time of being wrong? This is symptomatic of pride. The need to be right prevents one from appropriately evaluating issues as well as themselves and coming to know the truth. Galatians 6, 3 says, if anyone thinks he is something when he's really nothing, he's fooling himself. A person who needs to be right has an exalted investment in himself or herself and thinks that they know better than others. In religious circles, the need to be right is frequently manifested through always saying, God told me or God showed me or the Holy Spirit told me. There must not be a need to always be right. In times, we have to actually give up our right in being wronged to draw humbly closer, more intimate to Adonai. Number three, being argumentative. Individuals who argue their point or view, especially those in authority over them, are allowing pride to get the best of them. At the root of their argument is a belief that they are right and others are wrong, and their own will should be prevalent. It's appropriate to advocate for a point of view or position, but not doing so in such a manner that you are more invested in your opinion than arriving at a mutual understanding. Number four, being invested in being heard more than hearing. When someone develops a pattern of needing others to listen to them rather than first hearing others, pride is motivating the need. Five, anger. Anger is a self-justifying emotion. This means that the nature of anger is to prompt us to justify our position and blame another for the wrongdoing. Justification of self leads to denial of our own complicity in wrongdoing. James 1.20 says, For a person's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. An individual who is angry is suffering with pride. Number six is irritability and impatience. Even though, as a Messianic rabbi, I counsel people, it's only recently that I learned the root of impatience in life is anger and therefore pride. 
When we're unable to be patient with another and are irritated, it demonstrates a haughty view of self. We feel that our views, times, or needs are more important than other people. This, again, is indication of our pride. Number seven, it's a lack of a submissive attitude. Submission is a voluntary placement of oneself under the influence, control, or authority of another. When an individual pledges their submission to you or another, it is a critical or argumentative of that authority, then pride is the hidden issue. The test of humility and submission is being able to say yes, maintain a positive attitude, and trust God, especially when the decision of your authority goes against your grain or better judgment. Number eight, not easily being corrected. Ever work or live with someone who won't receive any negative or corrective feedback? This, too, is pride. Number nine, receiving correction but not changing. I've worked with people who would often receive correction and say thanks, but they never change. This is a form of pride. The individual is placating and people-pleasing, telling what we want to hear but not really taking the feedback to heart. Remember, the kingdom is one of transformation and renewing. So receiving criticism is one thing. Receiving and doing something with it is another. There must be change. Number 10, needing others to take your advice. This is an easy trap to fall into of having others take your advice. Advice should be offered without strings attached. If you find yourself resenting the fact that your advice is not followed, look deeper at the motivations and remove the pride. Number 11, needing to proclaim your titles or degrees. I have friends who often require everyone call them pastor or rabbi, saying that this is a deserved earned title. Demanding that others call you doctor or pastor or bishop or rabbi is a way of making you one up and them one down. Pride is fueling that requirement. Number 12, being stubborn. Webster's Dictionary defines stubbornness as unduly determined to exert one's own will, not easily persuaded and difficult to handle or work, resistant. The root cause of stubbornness or willfulness is pride. Number 13, comparisons of competition. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 makes it clear that comparing oneself with others is unwise. It says we don't dare class or compare ourselves with some of the people who advertise themselves in measuring themselves against each other and comparing themselves with each other, they are simply stupid, Paul said. Comparison is a form of competition. It's often overt. For example, emphasizing the size of one's congregation, the number of new believers. However, it can also be the subtle sin of heart and inwardly grieves when another is more successful or rejoices when another's ministry enters hard times. The motivation of this is pride. Number two, our tendency towards complacency. We talked about the issues of pride. Now I want to talk about complacency, which all deal directly with the issues of character. As believers, we are new creatures. We have new natures in Yeshua. Yet the fact of the matter is that our old nature still affects us. This isn't an instant transformation. In fact, this is a lifelong journey when we receive Yeshua that bit by bit, layer by layer, we destroy that old flesh and those old pagan ways and renew and restore and bring under the blood every aspect of our life. Our old nature still affects us. We tend to fluctuate between highs and lows in our spiritual life. As time, we are hyper excited about Adonai Yeshua and the kingdom of God that we think we're going to explode. Then in other times, the daily drudgery, the trials, the tribulations of life, it weighs us down. It bears down upon us, dulling our spiritual senses in our relationship with Adonai, the constant struggle, the constant battles, the constant zurus. As leaders, we must develop consistency of character and develop the ability to conduct ourselves, our lives, our walk with God in trust, even when experiencing difficulties, trials, or discouragement. Self-control and steadfastness is a sign of maturity in Yeshua. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2 says, Proclaim the word, be on hand with it, whether time seems right or not. Convict, censor, and exhort with unfailing patience and with teaching. 
all of us, when we enter into the kingdom, when we begin our assignment, our mission, we're filled with zeal and excitement, idealism, enthusiasm for his work. But in time, while demands, problems, struggles, and trials take their toll, we fall into weariness, complacency, and even worse, indifference. These attitudes and traits must be resisted at all costs. King Solomon is a perfect example of how destructive a complacency and indifference can be in a leader. In the beginning of his reign, his heart was filled with wisdom and fear of the Lord. Yet over time, he did exactly what the Lord said not to do for kings of Israel. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, the Lord said, When you have entered the land, and I, your God, has given you, you have taken possession of it and are living there, you may say, I want to have a king over me like all the other nations around me. In that event, you must appoint as king the one with whom Adonai your God will choose. He must be one of your kinsmen. This king you appoint over you, you are forbidden to appoint a foreigner over you who is not your kinsman. However, he is not to acquire many horses for himself or have the people return to Egypt to obtain more horses inasmuch as Adonai told you never to go back that way again. Likewise, he is not to acquire many wives for himself so that his heart will not turn away. He is not to acquire excessive quantities of silver and gold. And when he has come to occupy the throne of his kingdom, he is to write a copy of this Torah for himself in a scroll and from the one the Kohanim and the Levites use. It is to remain with him, and he is to read it every day as long as he lives so that he will learn to fear Adonai his God and keep all the words of this Torah and these laws and obey them, so that he will not think he is better than his kinsmen, and so that he will not turn aside either to the right or to the left from the mitzvahs. In this way he will prolong his own reign and that of his children of Israel. What did Solomon do? Just the opposite. When he first took the reign, he was very humble. God asked him for, he would give him anything he desired. He asked for wisdom. He understood his immaturity and his youth was unable to actually lead Israel. The Lord gave him wisdom. But it, despite this wisdom, as he moved on in his in his uh, kingship, he started purchasing copious amounts of horses from Egypt. He took too many wives and concubines. And this influence, it says gold and silver was as uh, prevalent in Jerusalem as was brass or copper anywhere else. He was so overtly wealthy, too many wives that turned his attention and he began worshiping other gods. The influence of too many horses, wives, and worldly riches seduced him so that it dulled his spirituality. The Lord directly spoke with him several times, two times, in fact, to maintain his relationship with Adonai, and yet he turned away and apostatized, resulting in the kingdom being split upon his death. Number three in character is our potential to sin. Through the power of sin has been broken in our lives through Yeshua, the temptation still exists. We're exhorted in Hebrews 12, verse 1, so then since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us too put aside every impediment that is, the sin which easily hampers our forward movement and keep running with endurance in the contest set before us. Hasetan works overtime to entice spiritual leaders into sin because of its devastating impact on others. Hasetan knows if he gets a congregate, you lose a congregate. If he takes a leader, if he takes a congregational leader, if he takes a televangelist, if he removes that person and causes that person to go into sin, thousands of lives are impacted. He knows our weak areas. He will repeatedly target you in those areas in order to wear you down. There are numerous biblical leaders that started well but ended in tragedy by succumbing to temptation, aimed at specific weaknesses in their life. 
King Saul started in humility, but he became rebellious and disobedient because of his character flaws. King David himself, who we've been talking about, uh, was an anointed leader, a powerful warrior, a worshiper, a man after God's own heart. But he himself became complacent and gave into lust. When it was a time and season when kings should be at war, he was at home, gazing out in, in bed till noon, looking out over the city and finds Bathsheba doing a mikvah. If he'd have been where he should have been doing what he should have been doing, this wouldn't have happened. King Solomon asked Adonai for wisdom as a young leader, but delved into idolatry, pride, and greed because of too many wives and too much wealth. Gideon, Gideon was chosen by God to judge and redeem Israel, but he he developed an ambition for power and greed. It didn't end well for him. And add to this list a long list of well-known fallen clergy we know and have heard about over the years in TV and radio. And no one, and I repeat, no one is beyond the possibility of giving in to sin. That's why there has to be such accountability in what we do. And it's why we have to develop these character traits. Remember, integrity is what you do when you think no one's watching. What is your true integrity? What is the true revelation of your heart? If you increase your vulnerability when you think you're beyond that, it's foolish to believe we're above it. We're told in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he is standing up be careful not to fall. This is critical. We must have accountability, partnership, no matter how many years you've been in ministry. I found something complacently comes in after you've been doing it for a long time. Where we live here in Hampton Roads, we're on the water, we're on the Chesapeake Bay, and it's a big fisheries around here. There's clamming, there's oystering, there's commercial fishermen. And every month we have news stories where a fisherman who's 75 or 80 years old has succumbed to the waters and drown. Boats flip over. Why? How come a crabber or an oysterman who's been doing this for 50 or 60 years, how does that happen? They become complacent and they don't keep on their toes. They become dulled in their work and the slightest thing takes them. That's how it is in a greater body of Messiah as leaders. We cannot allow ourselves to become complacent. We can't allow our spiritual senses to be dulled. We have to stay sharp. We have to read and consume the word every day, just like the kings were commanded to do. I don't believe you have to write your own copy of Torah today, but clearly you should have a Bible and every spiritual leader must be in that word. They should start their day with that word every day in prayer, supplication, and humility and learn from the great leaders found in scripture that we could be the great men of God, the great women of God in days of old, men of renown, warriors, worshipers, seeking the fullness and the wholeness of Adonai. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.